Please remain standing if you're able for the reading of the scripture from 2 Kings chapter 5. Now this takes place in the northern kingdom of Israel and uh, it's in the middle of a section of 2 Kings 2 through 8 that have to do with God's power through the prophet Elisha. And right in the middle of that section, there is his power and the grace of God exercised to a pagan, a Gentile, by the name of Naaman. And uh, my translation uses the name Yahweh, where the Lord appears in all caps in most of your translations. Uh, That's just my custom. It's a That's the personal name of the covenant God of the Bible. So if that's unfamiliar to you, you translate it back uh, into the Lord. Uh, But let me just go ahead with what I'm accustomed to. So 2 Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, or Syria, was a great man esteemed by his master and highly honored, for by him Yahweh had given victory to Aram. And the man was a mighty warrior, a leper. And Aram had gone out in raiding parties and took captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she was serving Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Oh, how I wish my master was in the presence of the prophet who's in Samaria. Then he could remove his leprosy. And he went in and told his master, saying, This is precisely what the girl who is from the land of Israel stated. So the king of Aram said, come on, go, and let me send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went and took along ten talents of silver, six thousand weight of gold, and ten changes of clothes. He brought then the letter to the king of Israel, which stated, And now when this letter arrives, see, I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you might remove his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he ripped open his clothes and said, Am I God to put to death and to make alive that this fellow is sending to me to relieve a man of his leprosy? Clearly you can know and see that he's seeking a quarrel with me. When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had ripped his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why did you rip up your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. And Naaman burst into a rage and went off. He said, Look, I thought he will surely come out to me, and he shall stand and call in the name of Yahweh his God, and he shall wave his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Ibana and Farper rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went off in a fury. So his servants drew near and spoke to him. And they said, My father, had the prophet spoken to you about a hard thing, would you not do it? And how much more when he says to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times in line with the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a small child, and he became clean. Then he returned to the man of God along with all his company, and he came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel, and now please take a gift from your servant. And he said, By the life of Yahweh in whose presence I stand, I will not take it. 
And he pressed him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules' load of soil, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but only to Yahweh. About this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant. When my master enters the house of Rimon to bow down there, and he's leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, may Yahweh pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. So he went from him a distance. Now Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has held back Naaman, this Aramean, not taking anything from him that he has brought. By the life of Yahweh, I shall run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi pursued after Naaman, and Naaman saw him running after him. So he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is everything all right? And he said, It's all right. My master has sent me, saying, Look now, there have come to me two fellows from Mount Ephraim, some of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. And Naaman said, Be happy to take two talents. And he urged him to accept them, and he tied the up the two talents of silver and a couple of bags plus the two changes of clothes and he gave them to two of his servants and they carried them before him and when he came to the hill he took them from him them and deposited them in the house and he sent the men away and they went off but he himself came in and stood near his master and Elisha said to him where have you been Gehazi and he said your servant has not gone anywhere And he said to him, Did not my heart go along as the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to get silver and get clothes and olive orchards and vineyards and sheep and cattle and male servants and female servants? But the leprosy of Naaman will cling to you and to your seed for all time. And he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Here ends the reading of God's written word. You may be seated. Well, our story begins with a mind blower. Uh, Political head knockers of this age would find it hard to believe those words in verse 1. By him, that is by Naaman, Yahweh had given victory to Aram or to Syria. Uh, Yahweh's Israel's God. What's he doing in Aramean politics? But by Naaman, Yahweh, Israel's God, had given victory to Syria or Aram. That is... The Lord, the earth really is the Lord's, and he gives it to whomever he wills, and he has jurisdiction over Syrian military matters and success as well. But that story doesn't hammer the point that turns our attention here, our attention to the man who had it all, including leprosy. Uh, Here's a story of international grace, a story of foreign missions, if you like. Naaman is not an Israelite. He's not one of the covenant people, and yet he entered the kingdom of God. This is a story in the Old Testament, and it tells us that grace is greater than all our genes. So what's it telling us about the grace of God? Glad you asked that. First, it tells us that grace is so interesting. Now, about the verses 2 to 5, really the first seven verses, grace is so interesting. Notice how the whole story 
in 2 Kings 5 hangs on this little lass. Uh, it's interesting that, that in verse 1, Naaman is described as a great man. And then in verse 2, the servant girl is described as a little girl. An interesting contrast. But notice her faith uh, there in verse 3. She says, oh, how I wish my master was in the presence of the prophet who's in Samaria, that is in Israel. Then he could remove his leprosy. This, this little girl with this kind of faith must have been from what I would call a remnant home because the northern kingdom of Israel was rather faithless to Yahweh their God and there wasn't a, a virile, uh, a virile uh, uh, faithful uh, belief and, uh, among many of uh, the people in northern Israel. But she must have been of that remnant that clung to Yahweh who still worshipped him Uh, who cast off pagan uh, worship and so on. And uh, so she she knows that Elisha, God's prophet, could recover uh, her master from his leprosy. That was her faith in verse 3. And uh, that's her whole story, isn't it? The, uh, The whole story here rests on her witness. And it was so natural. It was so simple. It was so sincere and so compassionate. She's just dusting the end table there in the living room while Mrs. Naaman is lounging with her latte. And she says, oh, I just wish my master was in Samaria with Elisha the prophet. It was just... So simple, wasn't it? But everything, everything hangs on that testimony. But don't forget, by the way, her tragedy. That's in verse 2. How did she get to be the maid of Mrs. Naaman? Well, the Syrians and Aramaeans went into Israel on raiding parties, and they, and they kidnapped this girl. They took her captive. Now, there's a lot behind verse 2. Uh, Think of the trauma of that for a small girl. Was she eight or nine? I don't know. Um, What happened to her parents when they raided? Did they kill her parents? Or did they take them captive and they're somewhere else and she'll never see them again? And here she is serving this Syrian general and his wife in their home. She's in a foreign land. She's um, among strange people. She suffered the terrible trauma of capture. This tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us that people are often brought into the kingdom of God at great cost to other people. But isn't this twist just typical of God's grace? It just rests on this little word of this little girl. Isn't grace interesting? Isn't it fascinating? Oh, this can be seen over and over again. I was struck a while back with reading from one of Faith Cook's books in which she told of one William Mackay. Now, William Mackay was a Scottish lad, about 1856 or so. He was going off to Edinburgh uh, to engage in medical studies, and his mother was concerned about him. He had been raised in a covenant home, you might say. Uh, she gave him a Bible as he packed his things to go off to Edinburgh, and she inscribed in the 
in the front, on the front page, in the four-leaf there, uh, a little message and signed her own uh, uh, greeting and so on. Well, he went off to Edinburgh. He paid scant attention to that Bible. He uh, formed friends who were cynical and unbelieving. Uh, he uh, got a taste for drink and for whiskey, and, and uh, that became kind of his master, in fact. One time he had no money to buy whiskey for drink, and so he was looking around and casting around to see what he had that he might uh, make a little money in order to buy some, and he happened to cast his eyes on that neglected Bible. And so he took it up and took it to the pawn shop and pawned it and got some money for a bit of whiskey and so on. Well, despite his drink, he still maintained high honors in his studies. He became, came to have a prominent position in the medical community. He began to freely and publicly disdain the faith that he had been taught. He joined an infidel club, etc. He lived a loose lifestyle. But he got a certain satisfaction in his practice of medicine because he, he took it as a challenge when someone was brought in that looked like they wouldn't make it. It was a personal challenge to him to, to see if he could pull that person back from the edge of death and so on. And he seemed to be quite successful uh, in all of that and highly esteemed for it. But one day, a man was brought in with his lower body crushed in an industrial accident, uh, and he was in a great deal of pain, uh, and yet there was a certain serenity about him. He asked the doctor, Dr. Mackay, if, uh, how he was going to do, and Mackay said, well, I guess we'll pull you through. He said, I don't want any guessing, doctor. I just want to be told the truth. I'm trusting in the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and if I don't come through this, I'll be with him. Just tell me the truth. He said, well, you have about three hours to live. He said, is there anything we can do for you? Well, he said, there's a pay packet in my jacket. I, I wish you would see that it gets to my landlady, and then ask her to send the book here. The book, what kind of book? Oh, just sell her the book. She'll know what it is. Well, um, Mackay rarely returned to check on patients, especially ones that he was losing. Uh, and yet there was something about this man that drew him back. And so later in the day, he went back and asked the nurse about this man. And she said, oh, yes, he died a few minutes ago. He said, did, did he get the book? Uh, she said, yes, he, he did. He said, what was it, a bank book or something? And she said, oh, no, 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 it's still there under his pillow. You can go see it if you want. And so he went in there. And he slipped his hand under the pillow of the dead man, and he pulled out a Bible. And he opened the cover, and he saw in there his mother's writing. It was the Bible he had pawned some years before, and it broke him down in tears of repentance and brought him to the Savior. Isn't grace interesting? Isn't God fascinating? That's what the text is saying here with this little girl. Now, secondly, grace is so infuriating. Verses 9 to 14. Grace is so infuriating. So, Naaman comes 
uh, and, and uh, gets to Elisha's house after the king of Israel has a meltdown over the whole thing and thinks this king of Syria is going to foment an international incident over it or something. But Elisha uh, calms him down. And uh, so Naaman comes with all his hoi polloi in verse 9, and he's there at the door of Elisha's house. Now he's loaded with silver, gold, and changes of garments, and so on. Now let's look at verses 10 to 12 again. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. And Naaman burst into a rage and went off, and he said, Look, I thought he will surely come out to me. And he shall stand and call in the name of Yahweh his God, and he shall wave his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Ibana and Farper, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went off in a fury. That's Naaman. Why that kind of reaction to Elisha's gospel? Well, he didn't like the simplicity of the gospel. Verse 10. Go and wash seven times in the Jordan. Uh, He expected something more ornate. Look at verse 11. He expected a a, a little bit of a... uh, uh, something involved and more entertaining, uh, uh, that he would come out and he would make a real uh, affair out of this and wave his hand and call on Yahweh and so on and, and uh, recover, grant him recovery and so on. He wanted a real religious TV type affair uh, going on apparently. And uh, he didn't like the simplicity of that gospel And he didn't like the narrowness of the gospel. Do you see in verse 12? He said, aren't I Banna and Farper, rivers of Damascus, far better than all the rivers of Israel? Why does it have to be the Jordan and no other? Why is there no other way? Why does it have to be this way? He doesn't like the narrowness of the gospel. But the real rub was the humiliation of the gospel. Did you... Did you see his word? Well, let's back up a little bit to verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Can you imagine that? Naaman, the super duper of the Aramean army comes and he's at Elisha's house and Elisha sends a messenger. He doesn't go out to greet him personally. He sends a lackey out to him and tells him what he needs to do. What a come down. And then, and then you notice in verse 11, Naaman said, look, I thought he will surely come out to me. Now, in the Hebrew text, those words to me are emphatic. I thought he would surely come out to me. I am somebody. Does he know who I am? What humiliation. Elisha did not stroke him. Elisha did not cater to him. Uh, Elisha didn't show him special deference because he was somebody. Elisha treated him like he was a leper who needed to be cleansed. But there's that pride there, isn't there? You must recognize that I count. Isn't grace infuriating? 
Well, it's always so, isn't it? Back in uh, the 1740s or something like that in England, there was a lady uh, by the name of the Countess of Huntington, and uh, she was uh, of aristocratic level of the upper crust, and uh, she came to faith in Christ, and she would open up her home or her estate and have some of the evangelists and so on uh, come, and, and uh, she would invite her upper crusty friends in and associates and uh, have them in and then have these uh, evangelists come in and, and preach to them. She would have uh, George Whitfield, for example, uh, among other things, other people. Uh, and this was a kind of a regular pattern for her. And uh, she got a little flack from this sometimes. Not all of these uh, folks really liked the preaching they heard. One of them was the Duchess of Buckingham, and uh, she sent a curt note to the countess after experiencing one of these services at her estate. She said that she found the, the uh, Methodist doctrine, they were called Methodists at that time, uh, Whitfield and Wesley and so on, found the doctrine most repulsive. And then she said this, it is monstrous. Now, if you can imagine uh, an aristocratic English accent saying the word monstrous, uh, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and assaulting, so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Naaman rides again. So let me put it to you plainly. If you do not believe that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. God does not feel compelled to meet your expectations. Nor is he impressed with your credentials or your achievements. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, not to stroke your ego. Isn't grace infuriating? But then it goes on. Thirdly, the text is saying to us, isn't grace Transforming. Grace is so transforming. So transforming. Verses 15 to 19. Let's, you pick up the story there in verses, uh, uh, from verses 13 and 14. Uh, and uh, you notice, by the way, here, the important role sometimes minor characters play in biblical narratives. Uh, Naaman's servants in... Uh, Verses 13 and 14 uh, intervene and, they, and, and so on. We don't know who they were and so on. Uh, minor characters, but it kind of changes the Naaman's way. They say, look, sir, if uh, the prophet asked you to do something difficult, you would have done it. How about this? It's just simple. Wash and be clean. Why don't you just go ahead and do it? And so he did, and he was completely cleansed. All right, so that picks up the story. But notice how grace is so transforming. How so? Well, notice the attitude he shows. If you look at verses 15 to 18, 
you will find that there are five times when Naaman refers to himself as your servant. There's a new humility in Naaman. And then notice the truth he confesses in verse 15. He said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Hmm. That's an interesting thing because you know back in 2 Kings 1, which I didn't expect you to read before you came to church today, but back in 2 Kings 1, there's a king of Israel uh, who uh, doesn't know seemingly that there's a God in Israel. He's, he's ill and he sends to find out from the God Baalzebub. He re- has recourse to Baal to see if he'll be healed. So you have a king of Israel as recourse to Baal, but here you have a pagan, Naaman, who now says, I know there's no God in all the earth except in Israel. Grace is transformed as a new faith as well as a new humility. And then notice the commitment he makes in verse 17. Please let there be given to your servant two mules load of soil. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but only to Yahweh. He wants to take two loads of Israelite dirt back with him to Syria, to Aram, so that he can worship Yahweh on it and so on. And, and sometimes Christians, I think, probably look at that and say, oh, come on, Naaman, haven't you ever read John 4? Don't you know that the place and the circumstances of worship don't really matter that much? You can call on Yahweh. You don't really have to have that. So, oh, get off his back. Let him have his mules load of dirt. Don't you see what's really involved there? There's a new loyalty. Yeah, he's going to have Israelite dirt on which he can sacrifice to Yahweh. Don't demean him for that. Look at the loyal. It's a new loyalty. And then in verses 18 and 19, he has a problem. He says in verse 18 to, to Elisha, now I've got a problem, it's an occupational hazard. Uh, my master, the king, uh, goes into the house of Rimon, his god, and it's part of my ceremonial duties, you see, to escort him. He leans upon my hand, so I'm supposed to go with him into the house of Rimon, his god. Now when that happens, and when I bow beside the king in the house of Rimon, uh, may Yahweh pardon your servant in that. Now, you may say, and some may, may make a point of it, ah, Naaman, why can't you cut the cords of paganism? Why can't you go all out? And so on. Well, you need to be careful there. There weren't people in Israel who were willing to copy Naaman's faith hardly. Um, the fact is, Naaman knew he had a problem. He had a conscience. He had a new sensitivity. He felt the rub of doing what he was called to do as a part of his job. And Elisha didn't push him on it. Hopefully you can see that there's a, the very fact that he's bothered by that possible conflict 
says something about the change that has come upon him. So here he is with a new humility, a new faith, a new loyalty, a new sensitivity. God's grace is so transforming. It changes. God's grace didn't just heal Naaman of his leprosy. It healed him of his paganism. And it made him a faithful, fearful worshiper. So he not only lost his leprosy, but his paganism at the Jordan. That's the power of grace. It leaves its marks. Grace is so transforming. Now, may not be as amazing or as stark or as uh, perhaps uh, spectacular as it seems in Naaman's life. Sometimes it's not that at all. Sometimes it's less than that, perhaps. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the British Baptist preacher of the 19th century, uh, was... once interviewing uh, a young girl who, who I, I don't know, I suppose she was 18, 20, 22, I don't know. Um, she was a servant girl, a domestic servant for some of the upper crusties uh, and so on there in England. And uh, she, she had professed faith in Christ and wanted to become a member, apparently, of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And so Spurgeon was interviewing her, and he was asking her uh, a bit of uh, her knowledge, I guess, of the Word and so on, and uh, her understanding of the gospel and, and that sort of thing. And then finally, he just says, well, all that's very good, but what evidence do you really have that you've been converted Oh, she started to blush. The, the red kind of comes up from below to the top, you know. And she said, well, I sweep under the mats now. <laughs> That's grace. It may not be spectacular, but it affected her housekeeping and her service. Grace always transforms. It leaves its mark. Now then, fourthly, you see here in this story, grace is so frightening. Grace is so frightening. And this is in verses 20 to 27 primarily. And we pick it up though, the, the, the difficulty of it, in, in verse 16. You know, Naaman was so grateful that he wanted to give Elisha a present in verse 16 and, or verse 15, and, and in verse 16, Elisha absolutely refused. He said, by the life of Yahweh in whose presence I stand, I will not take it. And he pressed him to take it, but he refused. Now, that was Elijah's resistance to Naaman's gift. Now, why was that so? I think because Elisha was trying to teach Naaman something about Yahweh who is now his God. What was it? Well, you don't pay Yahweh off. He's not like pagan gods, and you scratch his back, and he scratches you. No, no, he gives, and he gives freely, and you don't have to pay him off. You don't have to bring anything back to him. Now, that's a problem then with uh, Gehazi. Gehazi was chaffed about 
um, in verses 20 and following, you notice in verse 20 he says, look, my master has held back Naaman, this Aramean, not taking anything from him. The words this Aramean may be uh, a kind of a racial slur on Gehazi, this Aramean, Uh, but he has all these goodies, and Elisha didn't take any of them. And so, oddly enough, notice in the last of verse 20, he goes on oath in Yahweh's name. He says, by the life of Yahweh, I shall run after him and get something from him. Talk about a violation of the third commandment. But he goes, and, and uh, <clears throat> of course, uh, Naaman sees him coming then, gets down, asks everything, okay, oh, yes, yes. But you see, my master's had a couple of the sons of the prophets come from Mount Ephraim, and he was wondering if you might be able to give them a talent of silver and a couple of changes of clothes. And Naaman says, oh, let him take two talents of silver and a couple of changes of clothes, loads them on, Gehazi takes them back and so on, puts them in the house and all of that. Um, what was the problem with Gehazi's lie? Is it just because he told an untruth um, that he came out with this curse of Naaman's leprosy upon him? No, there was a greater falsehood. And it involved Yahweh's character. Do you see, Elisha had gone to great pains to try to teach Naaman in verse 16 that he didn't have to pay Yahweh off. Yahweh's goodness was free. And Gehazi screwed it up. He said, no, 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 we do need a little bit of a payoff here, Naaman. Messed up Elisha's whole intended message to Naaman. He perverted the grace of God. You might say, well, but it wasn't much. It doesn't take much. I remember when I was a teenager one time hearing a, a, a preacher by the name of Layman Strauss at a Bible conference, and he gave a little the illustration. Uh, he said, he used the statement, uh, woman, comma, without her, comma, man is nothing. But he said, you know, you, you get a, a pro-male fellow coming along that doesn't exactly care for that. And so he changed it. Not, not greatly, just, just a little, just a little. He put woman, comma, without her man, comma, is nothing. It's just the change of a comma. But it changes everything. The whole meaning. And so, here, you might think it doesn't matter too much what Gehazi does. No, it really did. It distorted the truth about Yahweh as a God of free grace with just two talents of silver and a bunch of clothes. And so there's this judgment in verse 27 that shows how serious it is to distort God's grace. It wasn't merely a lie that Gehazi told it was a lie about God that he communicated. And you may say, well, this is so, this is so harsh. This is so like the old, oh, this isn't anything like the New Testament. Do you know what the New Testament says? You know what Paul said in Galatians 1, 8, and 9 about perverting the gospel of grace? Give it to you in Philip's translation. 
Yet I say that if I or an angel from heaven were to preach to you any other gospel than the one you have heard, may he be damned. You have heard me say it before, and now I put it down in black and white. May anyone who preaches any other gospel than the one you've already heard be a damned soul. That's in the New Testament. And how often we need that reminder, because there are still many, well, some of those stirring up trouble in Galatia. There are still some Galatians around, you know, with their particularly Jesus plus mentality. It's not that they say you don't need Jesus, but they say you need Jesus, but he's not enough. He's not adequate. There has to be a little supplement. There has to be something more. It's a Jesus plus, and some groups are Jesus plus baptism is essential. Some Jesus plus my morality Some are Jesus plus a special experience with the Holy Spirit. Or Jesus plus an association with a particular group of cutting-edge Christians or whatever. But in so doing, they pervert the sufficiency of Christ and the free grace of God. Grace can be so frightening. Ah, yes, but there's more than grace because here in this text, we've really really been fixing our eyes on the God of all grace. And so the question is, but have you met him? Do you know this interesting, infuriating, transforming, frightening God of grace. You can know him today, you know, because you see, he has come near you. The one who's called the word in John 1, Jesus Christ has become flesh. And he is, as that text says, full of grace and truth. And having him, You will have all the grace you ever need. Now, our Father, we pray that you would grant your Holy Spirit to us and that you, Holy Spirit, would cause us to delight in grace, cause us to be humbled by grace. And... uh, Cause us also even to be frightened by grace. Let grace leave its mark on us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.